Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Drill Down, the business stories behind Stocks on the Move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today is July 8th. Well, just ahead, we're going to look at the maker of some water purifiers, which might have gotten a little frisky describing their products. And WD-40 is hotter than, I don't know, Sriracha. We're going to take a look at that booming business at WD-40. And our guest, Devon Energy CEO, Rick Moncrief, is going to help us take a look at the technological revolution in the oil patch. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. ERA's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And we hope you're subscribing to the podcast on whatever your favorite podcast platform is, but click that follow button. It'll make it easier to listen to every single show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. And I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We explain the business stories behind Stocks and a Move. And joining me to help me do that is our editor extraordinaire, Ben Wilson. Great to be here, Corey, as always. Yeah. So let's get to it. Sounds like fun. Corey, tell us the three most important developments in the world of business today. Well, I want to start with the IPO market. Um, You know, we don't normally do a lot of financial stories, you know, strictly market stories. I'm not going to tell you what the market was down less than 1% today and people were flipping out because they were and it was. But uh, what's going on in the IPO business is notable um, because of, you know, this week there's just one IPO. One got pulled because it was a Chinese listing and the company decided not to go public. company called LinkDoc, company called Unicisive Therapeutics, supposed to go out this week. So it's a slow week, but it is not a slow year. Folks at, at uh, Renaissance who track the IPO business, and there's a professor at the University of Florida named Jay Ritter who also keeps track of um, IPOs. They, he is known around the world as Mr. IPO because he's been keeping this tally for decades. Um, he says if you take out all the kind of financial instruments, right, the ETFs and the REITs and the close and mutual funds, and just look at operating businesses that have gone public, he says 191 have gone public in the first half of this year, raising $75 billion. And even if you toss out the ADRs, you've still got 162 U.S.-based firms, plain old IPOs, raising $60 billion. That is uh, as bigger than all of 2020. And in fact, he says we are on pace to have the biggest year for IPOs since 2000 and the dot-com bubble. So that's just an incredible amount of excitement. SPACs, which we've talked about a little bit, were super hot at the beginning of the year. They've really cooled off after some accounting changes from the SEC and some notable SPAC blowups like Lordstown. But uh, it's just interesting. A lot of companies choosing to go to the markets and get their stock traded and uh, open themselves up to investors and, you know, 
coverage on this wonderful podcast. Sounds like it's a, an exciting and popular year to be going public. To get public. And a lot of business around that. And what that means is bankers are going to be making a lot of money on the fees. Lawyers are going to be making a lot of money on the fees. The, the PR agencies that are helping these companies get ready to go are making a lot of money on these fees. And we're going to have more stuff to talk, to talk about. Speaking of which, let's go to story number two. Air travel is back, sort of. Took a look at the latest numbers from the TSA. They check how many people go through the uh, TSA systems at our nation's airports. And the numbers are big. Uh, yesterday, it was 1.9 million people. Compare that to last year, uh, uh, July 7th, was 630,000 people. So about, I'm going to call that three times more than last year. But we're not back to where we were in 2019. So let me first look at what we're looking at this here. So if you go back the last, call it three weeks, you get about 14 days where there were more than 2 million people. But by comparison, two years ago, every day was above 2 million and as many as 2.8 million flying on the 4th of July of 2019. So I think the biggest difference from what we're hearing from companies is that business travel hasn't come back. Will it come back? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, the Apple model, she's back east with, with our kids and uh, she's been flying. I'll be flying in a couple of weeks, but that's all, it's basically personal travel, right? It's not the business travel. I wonder if the Zoom year that we had last year might lead to a Zoom generation and a decline in business travel for good. Sounds like the business travel industries may have to do some innovating to encourage people to travel travel again. Or they might just travel to their Zoom call and call it a day. All right, and finally, third most important business story of the day, Wells Fargo is ending, uh, getting rid of one of their popular uh, consumer lending products. Um, they, uh, they're they going to shut down all their existing personal lines of credit in the next few weeks and no longer off the product at all. Those revolving credit lines, anywhere from $3,000 to $100,000, were a way for a lot of investors, a lot of, I should say, a lot of their customers, Wells Fargo customers, to consolidate their credit card debt, to get rid of high interest loans, pay for home renovations, avoid overdraft fees and linked checking accounts. Wells Fargo is stepping away from that business um, and a lot of their, their uh, customers, not too thrilled about it. Corey. What stocks are you drilling down on today? Well, why don't we start at the beginning with Helen of Troy? Helen of Troy trades with the ticker H-E-L-E. Shares are down 6%, but for <laughs> Heli. But for the last 12 months, shares are up 12%. What's the story with Helen of Troy? So I don't know if you know this company, but you know their stuff. They make stuff, um, consumer products, brawn thermometers, OXO kitchen equipment, pure water filters, Revlon hair care accessories, Hydro flask bottles. Who doesn't love the hydro flask, right? Stuff. Well, it turns out that some of that stuff ran afoul with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. That's right. The EPA stepped in and they saw some of the claims that, among other things, pure water filters and filtered air products sold by Helen of Troy, claims might have been a little excessive. So the company had to pull all the offending items off the shelf. And they announced this morning when they're announcing their earnings that they took a $13.1 million write-off for the cost of tossing the obsolete packaging. The products can come back on market eventually, but they had to be pulled off the shelf and uh, the company taking a charge for that. Now in context, the 13 million, what's it mean to this company to take a $13 million charge? So they had $541 million in revenues, which was a substantial increase up 29% year over year. But again, taking that charge and unable to sell some of their stuff. Um, here is the CEO, uh, Julian Minenberg, talking about the interaction with uh, with the EPA and suggesting that they were not the only company 
whose products might have run afoul of the rules of the road. There, uh, it's our understanding that the EPA in recent years has had a broad inquiry on uh, some areas of claims in their uh, rules. And then only recently, um, I think in the COVID era, uh, they have been investigating even further. We have anecdotal evidence from various sources that there are multiple uh, companies affected, but we don't have specifics and certainly wouldn't name, uh, name them. Uh, in our case, on the subject of claims, um, it, it depends by product. They're actually quite minor. Uh, and the reason I say this uh, is because our products are well labeled in water, as an example. And uh, the EPA nonetheless asked us to clarify uh, that the pure products don't filter microbes. For clarity, we never claimed that they did. Uh, and that has already been corrected. Nonetheless, we're going to be stickering those boxes. And those are the ones that have already resumed shipping. So I thought that was just super interesting that the EPA is finally during COVID saying, yeah, it's a water purifier, but it's not pure water. Can't get rid of microbes and other things. Also similar products, uh, air filters, they had similar problems there to Helen of Troy and kind of a surprise. It also sounded like, I don't want to be too pejorative about this, but it sounded like they didn't really have their hands around or their heads around how big this problem is or how long it's going to go on. And I think that's one of the reasons people walked away from the stock today, but interesting company selling lots of interesting stuff. Corey, what is your next drill down? WD-40. WD-40. Trades with the ticker WDFC. Shares were up half a percent today, but for the last 12 months, shares are up 29%. What's the story with WD-40? Well, it's a store that we've talked about with a lot of other companies. You know, WD-40 is kind of right up there with duct tape. It's just kind of a must-have for every fix-it situation. Um, isolation renovation. It's been driving Home Depot. It's been driving lumber prices. And it's been driving WD-40. WD-40 reported just fantastic sales growth, which they're attributing to isolation renovation. Sales were up 26% year over year. And again, sales were good last year. Sales are led by 44% growth in America, or in the Americas, I should say. That would include Canada. And, and uh, in Europe, about 43%. Not so much in Asia, 13%. But they are uh, just seeing fantastic success with people at home, bothered by squeaky stuff and people buying up lots of all the WD-40 products. Um, the company's also, interestingly, starting to raise prices all over the world, passing on their uh, increased prices and the prices of their raw materials, oil uh, included among them. Here is the CEO uh, talking to us about that, Gary Ridge, talking about how they're jacking prices everywhere and they've just started. This is really passing on the real price increases we're seeing due to increased manufacturing costs and increased raw material costs, some of which are coming from oil, but most of component trees across the world, we're seeing inflationary pressure. So across all product and mid to high single digits, depending on uh, which country and um, what impact uh, those costs are having. So there we have it. Uh, WD-40 just having a fantastic year with that, uh, the people spending on anything to fix up their houses and engaging in that isolation renovation. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at a company called GAN, G-A-N, which of course is also the G -A -N, ticker. G-A-N, GAN. <laughs> Perfect. Ticker makes sense to me. Shares are up 15% today, but for the last 12 months, shares are down 36%. 
What's the story with GAN? So uh, this is a super interesting company that is in the um, the gambling business. Specifically, they are they have got kind of two businesses uh, selling to casinos. So they've got a business to consumer product known as Cool Bet, and it lets you gamble online. It's focused in the European market. They say they're going to bring it to the U.S. They acquired that company within the last year, and uh, that is that company that part of their business, a B two C business, is doing so well that they came out in the middle of the quarter and said, look, we want to let you know we're actually, we're not going to wait till quarterly earnings. We're just going to tell you that our preliminary financial results show us that we're selling a lot more than we thought. And that's being driven by cool bet, people gambling online in Europe. And uh, they expect revenues to be a lot higher than they previously said, even when they reported earnings just a few weeks ago. And these guys have two businesses, as I say, the B2C business, that's business to consumer, online gambling focused in Europe, and B2B, which is selling enterprise software as a service for online casino gaming to licensed casinos in the U.S. And that business is growing uh, really fast. And what's interesting about that is that they talked a lot in their last conference call about their ability to go into casinos when, it, when, it, when the casino decides they want to do something online and very quickly seize that opportunity, sell them on a platform to host uh, their online betting and uh, they talked really about, I thought, just kind of a great lesson for anyone, really, on how do you close a deal? You close it quick. Here's CEO Dermot Smurfett talking about how to close those B2B deals and closing them quickly. It's absolutely about resourcing not just today's opportunity from our existing clients, but also responding and being able to capture these new B2B platform client opportunities that really come up for grabs in such a, such a fleeting way momentarily before they disappear from view again. Uh, unless you are ready and capable of bringing them online within, you know, four to six months, just as we did in Michigan, where you can see us signing a contract to win in September of last year and getting them live in January. And that was just one of three major client deployments. So really it's about ensuring that, you know, we don't, we don't, um, we don't miss these extraordinary opportunities. And we, we are open for business very much so, and we expect to have new B2B clients uh, imminently. So very bullish. And uh, again, uh, just a real sense of urgency there to get deals and close deals. And you saw the reaction of the stock today when they talked about uh, their other places, their business doing so well as well. All right, coming up next, we're going to look at the technological revolution going on in the oil field. Really fascinating interview with Devon Energy CEO, Rick Muncrief. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine, which consumes some 40,000 investor events annually across 10,000 global equities. Learn more at ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And remember to join The Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at Drill Down Pod, link up with the Business Podcast Network on LinkedIn, and check out our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what stocks you think we should be drilling down on. All right, welcome back to The Drill Down. We are joined right now by Devon Energy CEO, Rick Muncriff. Uh, Rick, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, the question I usually ask companies, and, and this one might seem simple in the oil and gas business, but what do you guys do? How do you make money? Now, good morning, Corey. It's great to be with you and, and your audiences this morning. Well, fundamentally, what we do is we explore for and uh, drill wells, uh, produce uh, crude oil, uh, natural gas, natural gas liquids, uh, sell into the market. And that's 
that's how how we make money and uh you know we, we do a lot of uh, a lot of good for society in the fact that uh we're uh, very active and uh you know and uh, providing uh, fuel to, to fuel the, the nation and fuel the world now you guys in particular are drilling up um, in uh, West Texas focused, uh, I, I would say in the Permian Basin, at least that's certainly that's where the focus of a lot of the investor focus is and a lot of the, your activity as well. Um, how do you describe the places and the ways in which you drill for oil? Well, what we do, I'm, I'm going to back up. Number one is uh, you know, yeah. just recently here, uh, uh, we actually closed a, uh, an, a merger between uh, Devon Energy and WPX Energy. Uh, of course. Closed that in, in January this year. And uh uh, the integration, the culture, everything's going together very, very nicely. I tell you, I had a high expectation, but it succeeded them. But, you know, we operate uh, fundamentally, I'll, I'll circle back into the Delaware basin, the, the Delaware part of the Permian basin here in just a moment, but we, we operate, we drill for uh, oil and natural gas in, in South Texas and Eagleford uh, basin. And we also are in the uh, Anadarko basin of Oklahoma, the Powder River basin of uh, Eastern Wyoming and then the Williston Basin of North Dakota. Uh, the crown jewel of, of our company is in the Delaware portion of the Permian Basin in West Texas and Southeast New Mexico. And uh, fundamentally what we do is we just, we drill uh, all of our wells are horizontal. In other words, we drill down uh, typically about two miles deep and uh, make a 90 degree turn and then drill uh, up to two miles uh, on average. Yeah. Wells, and then we will uh, stimulate uh, those wells and then uh, start producing the wells. And uh, uh, we also have ownership in some pipeline, uh, pipeline operations, uh, uh, some natural gas uh, processing plants, those sorts of things. But, but fundamentally, how we make money uh, for our uh, shareholders is through the, the efficient uh, drilling and completion and production of uh, the oil and natural gas. And, and certainly the, the Permian Basin is a crown jewel for us. Yeah, and I want to talk about the WPX uh, merger and, and how that's gone and how you've done that. Uh, why don't we start with that even? So that so big deal uh, done at a really interesting time in the oil business where you guys you know really took a big gamble to do this deal. And you also, um, I think in one of your recent investor events, you described that there's an easy way to do a merger and then there's the other way to do the merger. And you went the other way, which is to say you didn't just buy the assets and let everybody go. You really did try to merge these two companies, these two cultures that were similar but different in some ways. Talk to me about how you did that and what pieces of Devon and what pieces of WPX, um, uh, you know, you wanted to sort of bring to the, the top. Well, we knew that the, uh, you know, the merger was based, uh, if you recall, uh, 2020 was an interesting business uh, time, and really an interesting time for society around the world, obviously. Yeah, interesting is a kind way to put it. Absolutely. It was and rough. So it was rough. It was challenging, uh, challenging for for all of us. And so, but we felt like it was a, a wonderful time. We felt like the market did not appreciate uh, either one of the companies uh, to the degree that it should be. We we took a long term uh, view, and we felt like the cultures were similar enough. Uh, and we we had adjacent acreage uh, in the Delaware. Uh, we had a mutual respect of each uh, company. I certainly had a, a mutual respect of, of Dave Hager, who was at that time the Devon CEO. And I think it was a, a, a you know, feeling that he would say the same thing. And so it really came together uh, quite nicely. We, we have, uh, you know, some overlap in the Delaware, but we don't have as any overlap in the other, the other four basins we're currently in. And so those were unique to each company. So you bring those together and, and at the current time, all five uh, asset areas uh, really contribute something, either free cash flow or it's a, a growth option 
But at the end of the day, Corey, it was all about the uh, the Delaware Basin. That was the thing that we felt was the driving force. We also felt like, you know, the, the timing was right. We, um, uh, and well, it was so, cheap. Oil was yeah. cheap. The production was low. You know, the, the global economy was in recession. And, right. you know, if, if, you, if you've if you got some some uh, a view towards the future that things are going to get better, you know, you guys really took a swing and other companies didn't. That's right. And we felt like, uh, you know, what I've learned in the business world, I mean, I've been uh, in the energy business for, for over 40 years now. And typically, and it's probably true of most businesses and most sectors, that uh, if you have a tendency to, to lean into things and, and be, uh, you know, forward facing and uh, not not be back on your heels all the time. It typically pays off. Uh, you, you may you may get burned at the time or two, but typically it it pays off. And we we certainly uh, this this has been the case. And so for Devin, you know, we announced the transaction September 25th, we or excuse me, 20, uh, 27th. Uh, and uh, it was, uh, I think we, you know, our, our equity price has tripled since last September. Yeah. So it's been, uh, some of that's uh, obviously crude oil, but I, I think the fact that we've been uh, very thoughtful and we just felt like fundamentally the market underappreciated each company. It was a great time to put the companies together. And then we could do some unique things um, that uh, combined that we could not do uh, on a standalone basis. Such as? Such as implement this variable dividend. We're the first energy company to implement a variable dividend, uh, getting cash back to our shareholders. So, you know, if you think about the broader market, uh, it been very, very focused on growth. Well, that's not what uh, our investors want out of energy, uh, oil and gas today. And it is, that's, we have plenty of oil and, ga- uh, uh, oil and natural gas available. So let's be thoughtful. Uh, let's keep cash flow strong. Uh, pay down debt, and in our case, be able to do all of those, and on top of that, uh, implement a variable dividend. And the concept of that, Corey, is that, you know, Devon has paid a fixed dividend for 28 years. Like most companies who pay dividends, right? Yeah, so that's right. And so what we want to do is take any remaining, up to 50% of the remaining free cash flow uh, generated um, from our operations and return that to shareholders on a quarterly basis. And so, for instance, we, we've done that now two consecutive quarters. Uh, we're the first company to do it. We're encouraging other companies to do that. And in a in a in a broader market, that I think over time will be more starved for yield. In other words, uh, a percentage of, of a dividend coming sure. back to a shareholder, uh, it, it it's appealing uh, uh, quite nicely. And we've been getting quite a few calls from we call them generalist investors, maybe not just the pure energy investors, but it's it's. Uh, Energy. Uh, well, it's super interesting because you've, yeah. you've seen so many companies that make business decisions based on the ability to pay the dividend as opposed to business decisions that are best for the business and then have a dividend left over to pay the investors, you know, and it, and you see some companies run into real trouble because then the investor base is only there for the dividend. They don't really, you know, the long-term interest of the business might, might not be their focus. And if a company has to cut the dividend, the investors bail and it hurts the company. Right. Well, that's right. And so, so for us, I think uh, what we have done is, is a nice job of threading the needle. And that is number one, we are reinvesting in our business, but it's, it's not even 50% of our free cash flow. We are reinvesting in our business to keep our production flat uh, for this year. And the market doesn't want growth. We've, we've stated that our, our growth cap would be 5% on an annual basis. And that, that would provide a fair amount of, uh, fair amount of uh, cash flow uh, increases over time. But for us, let's get the dividend, uh, uh, get this fi- uh, fixed plus variable dividend concept. And I, I really think 
Corey, as we reel off quarter after quarter of this, it's going to it's going to appeal even even more to uh, to our shareholders and uh, and, and potential shareholders. Um, you know, if you look at it from the standpoint, uh, the other thing we've been able to do is we've been able to retire $1.2 billion of net debt right. uh, for six months of the year. We could not have done that on a standalone basis. But combined, well, and yeah. $75 oil doesn't hurt either, but it doesn't. You've also had some spectacular production for some of these wells. Right. Let's talk danger noodle. Yeah, danger noodle. So, you know, people ask me a, a lot of uh, what's what is danger noodle? Well, uh, you know, that's a uh, that's a, a slang word uh, for a, a rattlesnake. And in that, right. that area down in southeast New Mexico, and it's an area I know very well, I spent most of my childhood in uh, southeast New Mexico. Uh, yeah, you didn't sound like you're from Brooklyn. No, I'm, I'm not from Brooklyn or Queens. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but uh, Danger Noodle. Yeah, but is, it, was, was it was a tremendous, uh, you know, that was in this, this area in uh, Lee and Eddy County, New Mexico, and then just across on the Texas side in Loving County is some of the best oil and gas real estate in the nation. And we felt like that was one of the things that we liked about uh, the Devon Acreage and Devon Acreage, uh, uh, which this danger noodle pad was on, uh, you know, it it was uh, this, uh, located there in Lee County, New Mexico. Um, gosh, well over 5,000 barrels of oil a day. Yeah, you did 5,100 barrels of oil oh, yeah. a day for a month. That, that's correct. Which is just spectacular production. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's not a record or anything, but it's, right. it's just really, really strong. And it's indicate indication of what you guys are doing in shale and what you, how you guys are able to get that kind of production out. It's, I'm it's, also interested. Yeah, it's great. In, it's great geology, but, but, yeah. but it's also a testimony to the application of technology, Corey. That's, that's one of exactly. the, that's one of the biggest, uh, successes. Uh, I, I think that a lot of people don't uh, fully think about because if there was a time, uh, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, when people felt that the Permian Basin was dead. It was done. No, there was no future. It had been producing oil uh, for well over a hundred years and there just really wasn't uh, a future. And the application, the successful application of technology has changed that. And so whether you're- in So oil let's, gas, let's talk about this technology a little bit. So specifically what we're talking about is um, uh, horizontal drilling, um, you, fracking, you didn't use the word fracking, but I'll, I'll use the word fracking. Um, uh, and and the the different stages in which you stimulate those wells through fracking, it's just a fascinating technology technological change that really has really changed the world. Oh, absolutely, it it has. We've been talking about this for about a decade. Uh, you know, really, uh, I had a good fortune of being on the first uh, uh, or the team that drilled the very first horizontal Bakken well in 1987. And it was really the Bakken up in North Dakota, North Dakota. And, yeah. and it took 30 years for us from those first wells that were drilled in Texas and North Dakota in 1987, these horizontal wells to in 2017, be looking across the table from uh, Mohammed Barkindo, who is the secretary general of OPEC and really sense that the world has been changed. The Middle East dominance for crude oil production, the, the, the calculus has shifted. 100%. So when you start thinking about energy transitions, that sort of thing, this is an energy transition that's been going on for 30 years. I think it's, it's really setting the stage for whatever the future may hold. But I think it's a, it's a great, uh, great testimony. Uh, we, we applied uh, horizontal drilling, then, then advanced uh, horizontal uh, uh, stimulation or bracket, as, as, as you mentioned. But it's just being able to pinpoint it. And then the application of some of the uh, big data, those sorts of things that we, we can come in and we can, we're continuing to find more and more resource 
And uh, now, is that through and, uh, is that through better seismic? You know, I, I'm really curious how you're applying AI and, and, and what that means to an oil and gas company. Yeah, so I, I think in, in a way, seismic is a pretty good way to look at it, but it's it's really being able to go in and have your reservoir engineers and your geologists and geophysicists break down these individual intervals. And you may have a, a gross production interval of say 30 feet. We can get it down to, we know which is the best two feet to be drilling in. And now- No kidding. Now, so if you can imagine, you're sitting at your desk in front of a, a laptop, and you, we basically can guide these wells from you know several hundred miles away if we want to. We have on-site drilling operations, obviously, but we're watching it almost real time where we are in that zone. And in that as the drill head's going through the, absolutely. the the rock, absolutely. So it's just phenomenal wow. for an old timer like me. I, I get uh, I get pretty worked up about it, excited. Uh, well, I mean, I, yeah. you know, I covered technology for a long time. I know I'm out here in the San Francisco Bay Area and people ask me about my fascination with oil and gas. And I, I love oil and gas because on one level, it's the dumbest business in the world. You stick a hole in the ground and see what comes out. Yeah, it's not that way. And then it complications ensue. And that's, and I just, I just love the oil and gas industry because it's just fascinating. The applications of all these technologies is really interesting. So what is it in the, in the computational power of artificial intelligence that lets you do a better job drilling? Well, I think, I think number one is the real-time monitoring and that real-time monitoring uh, where we can, uh, we can understand pressures. We can understand the physical location of a bit and we can tie, we can tie that bit location to our mapping, if you will, of the, the formation that we're drilling in. And we know where that real sweet spot is. We have automation on our, our, on our rigs that are uh, optimizing fuel usage. Uh, optimizing, you know, minimizing emissions. We're looking at things like uh, uh, pump pressures. You know, what what are the pump pressures? That actually, as you turn the bit, is the most optimum speed to be turning your bit at the most optimum place within the formation. Just think wow. like that. It just goes on and on and on. And does and, that mean that the top drive design is really different than it was a few years ago? Yeah, yeah top drive has, has, has given you a, a lot more uh, flexibility and, and for for your audience in the old days, uh, old days being only twenty years ago, it's how fast right. uh, we really didn't utilize top drives that much. Yeah, I even say you know that's something's come on in the last fifteen or twenty years. And top drive where, is basically a thing at the top of the oil rig yeah, that controls the speed and how much it's drilling and that's right. And so on. You, you have automation uh, on there versus the old uh, mechanical rotary table that you had uh, on, right. on the rig floor. So. Uh, but it's it's the capabilities to continue to turn you you uh, you know that's one of the things that really helped us with cap our capital efficiency is we have less uh, downtime unplanned uh, you know problems uh, mechanical complications geologic complications and uh, top drive has been a big part of that. It's interesting that you know about top drive, so I'm, I'm impressed, Corey. <laughs> Um, you can take the kid out of the city. Yeah. Uh, so um, as it relates to that, also you talk a little bit in your conference calls about your relationships with the service companies. Right. And and uh, there, there are so many, and you know, mm -hmm. the Schlumbergers and the Halliburtons and the Baker Hughes and so on. But um, talk to me about those relationships and, and how you try to manage those in the with this incredibly cyclical business of oil and gas. Sure, well, I, I can tell you for our service providers, uh, the most valuable asset they have are their people. And you have to you have to uh, have a grounding. You have to have an understanding with your service providers that you're going to take care of their people. And that's from a safety perspective. That's from a, a continuity of work perspective. 
And you know, one of the one of the challenges that we saw during the pandemic is there was a lot of panic, and many people may have been running. Let's say they were uh, had 15 rigs that they were uh, running, and they went from 15 to zero. There was that right. panic. Well, that might have been the right thing for a producer from a uh, a company like ourselves, short term. But if you didn't take a long term perspective. Uh, you know, what you're going to do is you're really going to hurt those uh, service providers because suddenly they're faced with a decision. I have no more income coming in. We're not working. Do I keep my people, you know, and try to wait around and, and do, do, do some things and, and hope for the best, or do I make the tough decision to let them go now? What, what we did is uh, both Devin and WPX is we, we cut our activity in about half and uh, we throttle back or, uh, but we were able to, Keep a lot of our core service providers working, and uh, these are these are people that they're they're your partners. It's not an um, doesn't have to be an adversarial relationship. Uh, we can't we can't provide uh, our goods and services unless they're doing the same. You know, I, we can't put crude oil, natural gas in the markets uh, to meet uh, uh, demands for society if I don't have service providers that are out there uh, working and, uh, and their folks are, are, are doing a good job. So uh, we have a strong relationship. It's something we're very proud of and we're gonna continue to do that. And I think it can give you an edge uh, up on your competition. If you're viewed as someone that, that has the balance sheet, the liquidity, uh, the cash flows coming in that can continue to execute and continue to stay, uh, stay active, uh, that, that's a big difference. If you're a service provider, that's, that is so meaningful versus good, good customer, customer. Yeah. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about what's going on with OPEC uh, right now with this sort of meeting that's dragging out yeah. and dragging on. Yeah. There were some suggestions from some of the reporting of apparently people really like to talk when they're at these meetings, talk to reporters off the record, that the UAE, the uh, United Arab Emirates, has a different view about the future of oil and that their notion is, hey, we better sell this stuff now while the world's buying. Well, and it sort of suggested that they're looking out at a future where alternative energy sources, you know, whether it's geothermal or wind or solar, might take the place of oil and that they should probably try to transition their economy right now. That seemed like such a radical viewpoint to be coming from anyone in the oil business, especially in the Middle East. I wonder what your take on that is. Well, you know, I, I think uh, it, could, it could be, uh, I think there's an element of posturing there, Corey, where they're trying to, to really uh, get their quota uh, bumped up. And, you know, they, they've talked a little bit about that. So, you know, this latest uh, revelation, if you will, about uh, worried about a energy transition, we better get it while we can, uh, is it, somewhat of a, a new twist. I think that's uh, probably uh, counter to what the way most of the OPEC plus nations are looking at things. They, I yeah, think, you the, think? The, big, the biggest, the biggest focus, I think for OPEC plus and, and really for the global uh, industry is what is, what is the, uh, what is the right approach to, to continue, uh, continue to add barrels back into the market as the demand recovers and we're in the uh, recovery. Uh, the demand recovery is coming on uh, nicely. So how do you not flood the market while at the same time, um, you know, really not uh, uh, damage the economy and having uh, excessive crude oil prices at a time when, gosh, let's face it, you know, the economy, we're all trying to uh, come back, more, you know, what we've been sure. facing the last 15 months. So, so uh, my, my perspective, it's uh, that's, that's posturing from a negotiation standpoint, and uh, we'll see how it all plays out. Uh, that's one thing I've learned after 40 years uh, with OPEC, you, you never know what to expect, and so you just need to... Uh, uh, be, on, be on your feet. And, and the beauty for us is, uh, you know, I think uh, crude has rallied more than, than we 
thought it it would. And while it's it's a it's a good thing, we're not getting uh, overly uh, excited about that. We're going to be very disciplined, very focused, and, and stick to our game plan. And it's, it's, well, and we'll see what happens. I think I think the biggest bogey right now is, is jet fuel, and and what's happening with business travel. We've, mm-hmm. Everything else seems to be roaring back, but business travel. Maybe it'll be like this. We'll be doing these conference calls on Zooms and not on planes as much. I don't know. Well, maybe, maybe so. We'll say it all plays. I, I still think that man, uh, mankind, we're, we're meant to be together. And so uh, we'll, we'll see how this all plays out. Uh, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Rick, thank, I, I talked to you all day, but I can't talk to you all day. Rick Moncrief is the CEO of Devon Energy. We really appreciate your time uh, today. And we'll keep an eye on what you guys are doing there uh, down in Oklahoma. Okay. Uh, up next on the drill down the bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. We did talk about danger noodle producing 5,100 barrels of oil a day over the course of 30 days. So the question, what is the average production of a U.S. oil well? It's less than 5,100 barrels, but the exact number, we will give you that one number that means a whole lot when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by ERA, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. ERA's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And we hope you're listening to the drill down every day. A lot easier when you hit the subscribe button and follow us. That way you can download every show and not miss a single episode. Hope they're all as good as this one. We hope you keep listening. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod. Connect with us directly on our website, bizpod.net. All right, we're back with the drill down and the bites, that one number that tells us a whole lot. We talked about Danger Noodle, Devin's well that was doing 5,100 barrels a day over the course of 30 days. But what's the average production of a U.S. oil well? That number, Ben, is 27 barrels a day. That's according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. So when you think about 27 average barrels a day, now that you're probably thinking about some pump jacks you see in the side of the road, those old-fashioned things that go up and down and up and down that you see in some parts of the country. But a 5,100 barrel a day well is just jaw-dropping in that context of an average well being 27 barrels a day. That's about 200 times the average production of a U.S. oil well. Is that right? Yeah, just just jaw-dropping. And there are wells that have done more. And it's important that it's done it over 30 days. I was short an oil scam once where they talked about their production over the course of an hour, and then they plugged the well. Well, Mm. you know. (laughs) <laughs> it wasn't really telling you what it was really going to do. At that time, they said it was just too big to measure. But in any case, uh, great stuff from Devin. Great stuff from you, Ben. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. Ben Wilson is our editor in The Drill Down. It's a production of the Business Podcast Network.